Steve, happy Monday, man. How are you? Uh, really good. Had a great weekend. My my mom, Nana, took the kids for the weekend, and I forgot how awesome it was to uh, like be at 100% productivity. <laughs> the amount of crap you can get done without to to a, a baby and a toddler running around. It was pretty. Uh, it was pretty nice. Yeah, that's funny. I was actually hiking with a buddy last Friday morning, and he has younger kids and kind of getting used to the whole. They had their second semi recently, and he was like. I've just figured out, man, if you want to do anything for yourself or like anything personal, you just have to do it super early in the morning or super late at night. And it's, it's just funny <laughs> to watch guys go through that because you just realize it's like, I mean, I, I feel the pain. Like you have to like literally find a half hour to do something. And sometimes that's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. Sometimes like, yeah, cleaning the garage is on my to-do list and it just seems to take weeks before you can actually find two, three hours to, to do that. But yeah. Such is the life, being a yep. dad life. Yeah. Speaking <laughs> of dad life, you guys are going up ice fishing today. Is that right? We are, man. Yeah. I've, I've uh, lived in Idaho for basically all of my 36 years, and I've never once gone ice fishing. And uh, my buddy's the same story. We've never done it. So we uh, um, just said, hey, let's freaking, let's make it happen. So we're taking the, he's got a family just like I do. He's got three kids and uh, go up there and Joe, Joe, uh, try to get my daughter to catch a little trout or something it'll be fun yeah that'd be cool man is it uh has it been I, obviously in boise it can be fairly mild in the winter how's the weather been recently uh it's just been a warm january yeah in boise yeah i mean we're like high lows you know most mornings are 25 and then it's between 40 and 50 for the high and that's Dang. that's more like late february into march kind of weather so cool well, to get into things, we got some listener questions for sure, but also just kind of wanted to mention for those of you who uh, saw and or participated in our Christmas giveaway, we mentioned sending out those decals uh, in January, and those are in the mail. Um, unfortunately, with the Postal Service these days, things can be slow, but I'd anticipate that a bunch of folks will begin to get them this week and definitely over the next couple of weeks if you participate in that number one thank you again and number two the decal is on the way uh, and we actually added some decals and things like that to the website as well so if you guys maybe saw the giveaway didn't get on that or have no idea what we're talking about you can check those out under logo gear and then just a sneak peek we actually have some new shirts and hats and other stuff in the works um, that will be getting up in the next week or two so we'll let you guys know when that happens but Diving into listener questions. Uh, first one, this guy says, I just listened to your podcast with Emery, and he mentioned that his puffy pants are a game changer. Have you looked into budget puffy pants, and what have you found? I'm guessing that, like with most things, you get what you pay for, but I would first like to try a good budget pair before spending a couple hundred bucks or more on puffy pants from First Like, who you or another premium brand. So that was from Joe. Um, yeah, the one thing that comes to mind, uh, and this can be very budget, um, is military, uh, surplus. They have, um, their extreme cold weather systems. So it's like ECWCS, I believe. Um, you just look there, but essentially if you search military level seven pants, you should get some options and I'll include a link to, uh, Amazon in the show description as well. But essentially they are um, from part of their military cold weather system, a primal off, so a synthetic puffy pants. And you can find these in order from like sometimes as cheap as like 30 bucks, 40 bucks and on up. 
Um, even on Amazon, like the ones I'll link you guys to, you know, how Amazon does, it depends on the size that you're after and the size determines the price, but you can find them, you know, in addition to Amazon from a bunch of other places. But, um, yeah, it'd be a great budget place to get start. Um, they're not, you know, they're not going to be as like cut well, they're not going to probably pack as well. I haven't tested them for warmth. I do know of a couple guys who have run them for sure. Um, they're probably not, you know, going to be like the full zip, um, that makes them as easy on and off as something like the first light. But again, if you're looking to just try something, get into something relatively cheap, 40 bucks, 50 bucks, 60 bucks, something in that ballpark would be a good way to go. But, uh, anything else, Steve, that comes to mind budget wise specifically? Uh, not, yeah, the only one you sent me that question and, um, uh, it's not, I was just looking it up. It's not super not budget by any means it's still 180 bucks um but king's camo um i saw them at the uh i think it was at the utah hunt expo last year just walking down an aisle and saw like some puffy pants that looked really nice quality and i went over and looked at it and i was surprised that it was king's camo i was like man these things look pretty legit um and you know they're they would be to me like you know i think just a they look to be a really good option it's just 180 bucks that you wouldn't need to necessarily upgrade from, right? Um, mm-hmm. they, they look really nice. They have their um, 650 fill down. Um, they just come in gray. They look fairly impressive. I was trying to look on First Light's web um, website to see what uh, to see what those even cost. The Uncompagri. Uh, eh, never mind. They're the same price price range, 185 to 195. So okay. Um, yeah, those Uncompagri puffies are what I have. Fact, I. Uh, speaking of going ice fishing, I've got those things loaded up in my uh, little tote that we're taking up there to pull in with the sled. So yeah, um, yeah, those things don't use them often, you know. But but when you are hunting that extreme cold, man, they are. Uh, I was surprised when I used them for the first time in 2019 how awesome they were. Yeah, I would say overall, if you you know if you think you're going to be able to use them a fair amount, don't overlook things like the zipper system, um, you know, to get easy on and off. Because especially if it's a situation where you have the potential to take them on and off, because you're sitting in glass and then up and moving and all that, like dealing with something with tight cuffs or no full zippers to get them over boots easy um, is just going to be a giant pain in the butt. So it's like, yeah, maybe you can spend sixty bucks or whatever on a quick trial, but in all reality. Um, you begin to use those on any, any sort of basis. And maybe that's not ideal. Like maybe it's one of those things where it's eventually worth, you know, investing a little bit, but that's obviously always going to vary on the situation and the person. Um, let's see on the next one. This is a, a random question, but I kind of like it. And it's, it's one of those things that's, uh, just overlook sometimes like we throw, I think Steve, you and I throw a lot of things out there in passing, assuming, people know what the heck we're talking about but yeah they just don't which is perfectly (laughs) fine um so yeah it's it's always good to kind of clarify things a little bit so this guy wrote in travis wrote in says in episode 260 you guys had jared and eric on the show talking about their diy kodiak island blacktail hunt during the podcast you guys talked about using the alaska air credit card and using it to their advantage to save money on flight tickets I've tried doing some research and I'm just trying to figure out what are the benefits of an Alaska Airlines credit card. Can you help me understand a little bit more about that? Um, So I'll hit that from a super high level and then Steve, feel free to fill in the gaps. But essentially, you know, when it comes to airline credit cards, you know, every airline has their credit card. And as you spend on the card, 
you know, you earn miles essentially, right? So you're, as you're spending money on the card and hopefully paying it off as well, you're earning miles and then those miles can then apply to future airfare. What's unique about the Alaska Airlines credit card is they have additional benefits. Um, one of the huge one being they have what they call their companion airfare. So essentially it's like a hundred bucks, 120 bucks. You can take someone with you at that rate on almost any trip really. So, uh, you know, a good example is my buddy Jared has the Alaska airlines credit card. And when we went on our caribou hunt, he used miles for his flight and then I could pay 120 bucks and fly all the way to Alaska and back because of that specific companion airfare thing. In addition to earning miles, which means you can maybe fly somewhere for free when you use your miles, and then the companion airfare, having the Alaska Airlines credit card also gets you some other little perks. You know, you get like your first bag checked free. Um, you get other, you know, like in-flight food and all that stuff. But the main thing is number one, earning miles to maybe fly to Alaska for free. Number two is essentially splitting with a buddy um, and getting companion airfare and then some perks on baggage as well. Um, anything else there, Steve, that you've kind of used, noticed, benefited from? No, yeah, you just covered it all. Yeah, I mean, ba basically, if you're going to Alaska, um, I guess if you're doing... I think you can fly other airlines into, you know, Anchorage, Fairbanks, stuff like that. But if you're going to, you know, most of what we've done is always take, you know, Alaska Air, you go into Anchorage and then jump on another Alaska airline flight all the way into Kodiak or from Anchorage up to Kotzebue for our caribou hunt. Um, and so you're on Alaska Airlines flight till kind of that final destination. And um, you're just saving, um, you know, just saving a lot of money there, obviously having that you get the two for one deal with a companion fare and you build the miles. And then when you're bringing the meat home, as you just said, they, it's like they shift all the baggage prices down once you get one for free. And then the next one's cheaper and the next one's cheaper than that. Um, or the cheaper than it would have been without. So Correct. Um, yeah, yep. it's kind of, it's a no brainer. You just, if you're going up there with a buddy, you, you get it and start saving the money. Yeah. Yeah. And I would be strategic about that. I mean, if you know, like, Hey, me and my buddy want to go on a hunt in two years or in three years, then talk amongst yourselves. One of you get the card, start, you know, racking up the miles, and then the other guy can benefit from the companion airfare, or just kind of split things down the middle once you actually start to pay for flights or what have you. So um, it's definitely worth it. I mean, if you're if you're going to go to Alaska, and even if that's a few years out, um, I'd say even if you don't have a hunt, like a specific hunt plan, you're just like, I just I know I want to go to Alaska in five years. I would say one of the first things you should maybe consider doing is start using that credit card. Um, because what's going to happen is you're going to start earning all these miles and then you go, well, I have to go now because I have all these free miles. Like, you got to fly to Alaska now, right? <laughs> yeah, you got the flight for free. <laughs> yeah. Then you can sell it to your wife easy. It's just a win-win-win. <laughs> all right. Um, Jed wrote in with a XO question. I'll let you tackle, Steve. He said, I was looking at the Slurpee stalker and it brought up a question I have. When do you guys decide to dump your pack, your full pack, and start when stalking? Um, or if you're just hunting with a day pack, is that even something you worry about? So essentially wondering, when you do you drop the full pack system in terms of a stock? Um, and he's obviously in the context of wondering about the Slurpee stalker specifically. I guess immediately I'm like how well, 
when Lenny and I designed the Serpy Stalker, it was based around like early season high country mule deer. Uh, so that's kind of my immediate default like scenario I'm putting myself into right in my head. Um, for elk, I probably wouldn't drop my pack. Um, I, I it's bitten me in the ass a couple times in 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 the past where you uh, you know the elk is or the animal doesn't matter what yeah species here the animals right there they're 100 yards away and you get that final little stock but they're up and feeding and moving um you drop your pack and inevitably you know they're gonna feed away from you and you're gonna end up you know following and chasing them and you end up you know five six hundred yards from your pack and then trying to get back to your pack is a nightmare uh so i just kind of have a rule unless the situation just absolutely calls for it i just keep the pack on you know in, in that elk woods uh, antelope hunting, I would, you know, that'd be completely different. It should be much more open terrain. Just try to drop the pack next to a, a bush or, you know, some type of landmark where you, you know, you're gonna be able to find it easily. Mule deer said why the Slurpee Stalker is designed. Um, to me, I, you know, I think early on when I was, you know, learning how to mule deer hunt, um, I always underestimated, um, uh, how close I could get before I had to get really quiet. And, and basically now I just take a, it's literally, I want to say, I want to say double, but maybe even three times as far. So if I think I can get to within, uh, say 200 yards, it's 600 yards. I'm taking my socks off or my shoes off and, and I'm going to be in my socks and I'm taking my pack off. Um, and then, and I basically go into stealth mode from right there, take the pack off. Um, and then I'm going to pull out Onyx or, use my Garmin watch or something and mark that point. Uh, Cause you, as I said, it's really, really easy to, to forget where you put your pack. You just in the, in the heat of the moment, you're like, Oh, I'm next to this tree and the deer is right there. I can't possibly mess this up. Even if the stock doesn't, you know, this doesn't work out. I, I know where my pack's at and it's just, just take that extra 30 seconds and mark where you dropped it. Um, Lenny and I had that happen to us years ago where we, uh, we both dropped our packs and ended up chasing two bucks, like all the way down the top of this mountain. It got dark on us. Um, you know, you, it, you thought it was going to be a five minute stock and ended up being an hour. Um, and then, so we're hiking back up this rocky kind of cliffy face uh, in socks and then in the dark without headlamps and you're trying to find your pack. And uh, yeah, it's just not a good scenario to be in. So um, yeah, that's my rule. I, I you know, uh, if I said, if, if I think I can get to within, um, you know, 200 yards, it's it probably 600 yards. I'm just overly, overly cautious. And obviously that's all dictated by terrain. Um, you know, if you've got like a little ridge in between you and the deer, you can get a lot closer if it's all open, but I've just kind of, um, take that very cautious approach. Cause especially on a, on a mule deer stock, the typical scenario is I've glassed them from across the Canyon or some other vantage point that was, you know, half a mile to two miles away. And it's taken an hour to three hours to get to where I'm at now, where I'm going to start the stock. And it just happens way too often where that deer gets up, moves a hundred yards and rebeds, And you just need to be ready for that scenario. Um, and that means just going really slow and, and being methodical with your glass and um, don't have, uh, you know, don't let that stick in your mind too much where the deer was last bedded. I mean, that's obviously the direction you're going, but have your head on a swivel. And as you're making that stock, be, be looking left and right, looking for other deer that you didn't see. You just got to be really cautious in that, uh, in that scenario. 
Good stuff. Um, we had a question come in on stabilizers, which we've touched on in the past for sure. Um, but yeah, let's let's hit this and kind of tie it into a few things. One, the guy wrote in and said, recently I came into the position of needing a new bow stabilizer. I'm wondering if the higher end stabilizers are worth it in your opinion, or if the cheaper options do just fine. What length and brands do you recommend? Um, and he says, I exclusively hunt spot and stock out west. So one of the things that comes to mind, and we've, again, we've touched on stabilizers, but, um, you know, with questions like this specifically, um, I almost, I don't want to like compare it to boots, but in a way I do and say it's personal. And by personal, I don't just mean your preference, but even what bow you're shooting and how it's set up um, when it comes to stabilization. Because I found over the years that, I've loved a certain bow stabilizer set up on one bow, but for another bow, it didn't, I don't want to say work as well, or maybe wasn't as necessary. So how a bow is set up and how it balances and how it's um, essentially feels at full draw for me is going to change from bow to bow and then even with different accessories on it, including a stabilizer. So, you know, answering a question like this and saying what length and brand do you recommend i could tell someone what i'm shooting but if they have a different bow that choice and stabilization stabilization may be not what they need not what they want so one thing that comes into play when you talk about stabilizers that i, I tend to look for and like is wanting to have some adjustability and that's obviously especially on weight um, being able to play with, do I want two ounces at the end of my stabilizer or four ounces or what have you is going to be really important because you're going to be able to go trial and error, see what feels best, see how you hold best at full draw, um, and not just buy a stabilizer and assume that it's going to work for you, even if it worked for someone else. In terms of you know, he mentioned in there the higher end stabilizers worth it or do cheaper options do just fine. I, I'm not sure, you know, like what is considered high end or cheaper. Essentially, to me, it boils down to um, wanting to have something light, uh, like a carbon type rod with some sort of weight at the end. And again, an adjustable weight um, that there's a lot of options out there that do that. Um, I've even played with things like the crossover stabilizer, which is a telescopic um, carbon rod. I haven't used the ones that are like four, you know, four piece telescopic. I just have used the single that adjusts from like eight to 14 inches or something like that. Um, and that, again, that's another way you can play with adjustment. But in the end, I would just say four stabilizers, try as many as you can. So go bug your friends take off their stabilizer, put it on your bow, go to a pro shop, see what all different stabilizers you can try. And then I would also say when it comes to you changing bow setups, don't assume that your stabilizer from your last bow is what you need for this bow. And again, this is like splitting hairs. I'm not saying one stabilizer is going to like change your world per se, and then not work with another bow. It's just a matter of kind of fine tuning and dialing in what works. Um, for you, but Steve, what what comes to mind in terms of stabilizer recommendations, choices, what have you? There's kind of two different answers and directions to go with it. One is um, just the physics of a bow and stabilizing it, right? So 
this was kind of my old approach. Um, and frankly, it's still my approach. There's just also possibly a better way. Uh, <laughs> this is basically the, you want a, de- a heavy weight as far away from your bow as that you can practically pack around in the woods and hunt with, right? Um, like if you, if you looked at historically at tournament, uh, tournament 3d shooters, they're going to have a, you know, a 24 to 36 inch bar with some weight on the end of it. They're trying to get some weight as far, as farther away from the bow as as practically possible. Uh, and that, that weight, you know, just you kind of, I always use the, the guy on a tight rope analogy with the super long pole, right? He's got the, the longer that pole is the more stable he's going to be on that rope. It's the exact same concept that applies to a stabilizer. Um, so that was kind of always my approach, uh, forever was just get, uh, between a 10 and a 12 inch, um, carbon bar. So you don't, you just want to, you don't want to add unnecessary weight to the bow, uh, in the wrong places. So get a super light carbon bar with an adjustable weight on the end, like you mentioned. Um, so for a lot of years I was using B stinger. Um, there's another brand in there that I can't think of what I was using. And then the last few years, uh, there's a small company out of Oregon called spider archery. And that's what I use. So I think I have a 10 inch carbon bar from them with probably five ounces on the end of it. Um, and that seems to stabilize well, the, um, the other answer to that is bow balance. And that's something that I never really played with. Um, and frankly, from a hunting perspective, uh, I don't bother with either just because at that point, if you're talking about bow balance, not all uh, only are you talking about um, the, the length and weight of the stabilizer in the front, but you're typically running some type of sidebar off of it that kicks down and back away um, from the grip. Um, and so you can really kind of fine tune um, you know, you, when you kind of come to full draw, how that bow just naturally wants to sit in your hand. So you're not, um, having to fight, like say with a really heavy stabilizer, it wants to kind of go nose down. So you come to full draw and it's, you're kind of having to like pick it up, like put pressure at the bottom of your grip, uh, to pull, to pull your sight pins into where you want to hit, um, with, with you really want to dive into it and get the balance perfect. So it just kind of naturally sits there. It doesn't go forward or back or left or right. Um, then you're looking at sidebars and and different options there. And then you just get into the weeds to me of like, okay, that's awesome. But from a hunting scenario, do I really want, it's already annoying enough having a, a 10, 12 inch, you know, carbon rod of the weight off the end of it, off the front of it. Now you got stuff off the side and it's on the opposite side of where your quiver is. Um, so when you go to strap it to a pack, you've got like either strap the quiver down or the the sidebar down. And it, to me, it just kind of gets messy and overly complicated. And, and I can shoot, um, you know, uh, it, with definitely more than acceptable accuracy without it. So um, that's kind of my current take on it. Like I said, I think on my Hoyt, uh, the RX3 I, sh- I was hunting with this year, it's a yeah 10 inch carbon bar and, and five ounces on it and it holds and stabilizes great. So. I saw the new, uh, the new Hoyts, their RX-5 came out and they've got basically kind of a, a really low stabilizer mount off the limb tip. Uh, and it's kind of an interesting concept. I mean, in, in some regards, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and others, I'm like, I'm curious how effective it'll be. So it'll be kind of fun to, uh, to get that and start shooting it and see how well it does with basically that they've got like a little two inch stabilizer that's included with the bow that comes right off the, um, the limb pocket. 
Yeah, what they did there with the stabilizer mounts, and then uh, if you guys haven't seen it, they have new, basically new mounts for sights uh, and rests as well. But they're essentially trying to move everything in line with the bow riser. Um, you know, if you think about it, you've always had the sight a bit off to the side. You've had the rest off to the side. You have the quiver off to the side. Um, and they're changing that and have new inline systems, which is, you know, a feature of the bow and uh, going to be accessories that are specifically um, capable of being mounted in that way. So it's kind of a, you know, it's one of those things, I think, to to make that leap, to make a change, to kind of drive some new ideas or innovation. Um, they're just moving to a whole new system. I mean, forever you've been able to take almost any bow and mount any almost any site or any rest to it and they're moving things in line which is going to require changes to that which obviously um if the benefit is there could be worth um you know be worth the hassle worth the cost of upgrading because now you can't just pick up the brand new hoyt bow and slap your sight on it per se and get the full benefit you need the site that can mount in line so it's one of those things that's at least cool to see them kind of like swing for the fences a little bit and not just yeah. stay static and truly, uh, you know, try and innovate. So, yeah, I mean, it'll be fun to play with it. Makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm hoping that the, the industry um, adopts like at least, you know, two standards or something like that, that, that all yeah. the boat companies can agree on. Obviously, there was the, you know, how the... Uh, how everything mounted in the past has been a standard that every bow company does. So accessories are kind of cross compatible with things. And, um, hopefully it, you know, they find some happy medium there to where not every, I just look at it from a, you know, like a spot hogs perspective of, you know, they're an independent company and all of a sudden Hoyt's got a different mount and Matthews has got a different mount and Botex got a different mount. PSE's mm -hmm. got a different mount. It's, it's going to get in the weeds pretty quick. Um, uh, and, and yeah, you're going to be kind of limited like, all right, if I, if I want, to get this Hoyt bow, you know, these are my only one or two site choices. So hopefully they, some, uh, standard gets adopted to where it's kind of cross compatible everywhere. Uh, but that, the new inline theme is like that Picatinny mount on the Hoyt. Um, that seems like a pretty easy one that, um, could be adapted to and everyone could start having, you know, just a slight change to the base, uh, for, you know, like I could think of almost all spot hogs and black golds, like yep. the base is a separate component from the rest of the site. And, it's just a basically a modular base you slap on there. So yeah, definitely cool to see see him pushing and and uh, without innovation and you know along with that comes some, um, you know I say things that are annoying, right? Like you're gonna have to deal yeah. with things that aren't compatible for a while, but in the long run, I think you're gonna be better off. Yeah, yeah, it makes me think of you know when. Easton came out with deep six, right? Like they mm -hmm. wanted to push aero technology, they wanted to drive to these thinner shafts, and they realized to do that you couldn't hold the standard on what had been the threads for inserts for field points and for broadheads. And so to push the envelope and kind of get to that next level in arrows, they had to come up with now a new standard to have broadheads that work with that and have field points that work with that. And so it's, it's a similar situation here where it's the bow, they're trying to take that to the next level and to have compatibility for things along with that. There's kind of the, as you said, like annoyance of, gosh, now I, you know, I had my broadheads that I loved and now I have to buy deep six versions of them, right? Yeah. Um, and I think we'll see, whether it's from Hoyt or even third parties, I think 
because of the way that Hoyt did it with that Picatinny mount you mentioned, we'll see adapters for sure. So you might not have the inline sight, but you're going to have um, some sort of adapter that can use the inline Picatinny mount and then slap on your black gold or um, any sight you know that you have used in the past. So we'll see. We'll see more of that stuff for sure. Cool. Well, Steve, that's a wrap on this one, man. I know you got to hit the road and go ice fishing, so go enjoy it, man. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a rough day. Yeah, we're going to have a blast. I'm excited to, um, gosh, even my son caught, you know, reeled in a trout this year and he's, he was like 18 months or something like that. And when that thing flopped out of the water, he was laughing and just, he thought it was the coolest thing ever. So excited to have him reel in another fish today. It's going to be fun. Well, guys, thanks for tuning in. We'll be uh, we'll be back on Wednesday with the full episodes. If you haven't yet, hit that subscribe button to make sure you receive that one. And if you have a question for us for a future Monday Minute or anything like that, just send us an email to podcast at exomountgear.com. And then I'll throw in links in the show description as well on those puffy pants we described, a link to the Alaska Airlines credit card stuff and more. So check that out if you're interested. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>